0: We need to own the narrative around all of these things. Yeah, I can talk to you about what it means to be woke, uh, but I have a very different perspective on it than a certain governor from Florida. From Interfaith
1: Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in
0: Massachusetts. And I think we need to have a re-engagement around the narrative of these things, and we can't be timid when it comes to
1: that. The Reverend Dr. Derek Harkins has made his mark in government, religion, and media. The former director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the Department of Housing and Urban Development under President Biden has also served as the director of Interfaith Outreach for the Democratic National Committee, where he led faith outreach during the 2012 re-election campaign of President Barack Obama. For five years, Derek was Senior Vice President for Innovations in Public Programs at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And he has also served as chair of the board of Odyssey Impact Productions. All that and decades of pastoral ministry on top of it make Derek Harkins a fascinating guest and someone with a unique insight on the times we're living in. Things are changing at State of Belief. We've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country, for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Now, this is very important. The podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We have so much planned for the weeks and months ahead and I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, Information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. Today, the Reverend Dr. Harkins is a principal in the Rabin Group's issue campaign practice area. His broad experience in government, religion, and coalition building makes his expertise much in demand. And I am very happy to welcome him back to State of Belief. Thank you for making time. Thank you for making time for this,
0: Derek. More than my pleasure to be here. It's great to be here with you and with everybody who uh, is uh, listening in. There's something about your vocation. There's something about your
1: calling that has led you in amazing directions Could you talk a little bit about your background, where you come from, and how you got this calling to have this amazing public, pastoral, prophetic
0: ministry that you've had? Thank you. Well, uh, I'll try to give the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of that and say that grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and the church that I grew up in, the Antioch Baptist Church, uh, led at the time by one of my absolute lifetime mentors, Emmanuel Branch, uh, he epitomized uh profession of faith in the public square. Uh, while he was an amazing pastor to uh, our congregation, he also was a voice and a clear presence, Uh, g- given this was the late 60s. So you can only imagine the kind of broad sweep of issues and concerns that Faced, uh, not only Cleveland, Ohio, but the nation as a whole, and seeing him model that, but doing it with a level of integrity in terms of being still uh, authentic, if, if you will, in the pulpit and in, in the pews, uh, was a real a, a wonderful sort of starting point. Uh, Continue to see that unfold, uh, went on to college, and even there kind of got tugged at to uh, consider, you know, what might be the, I, I originally had planned on going into broadcasting. Mm. And uh, it's funny because uh, even though that's still in some respects, a part of the work that I do, you know, in in the public realm, not, not unlike right now, um, I felt that it was really helpful for me to feel like I could still be a voice. I could still be a presence in an impactful way uh e- even in the context of ministry and went to union seminary uh, of course as we all know uh social justice and and the understanding of how that uh, speaks into ministry is is part and parcel there uh got cut my teeth uh, in terms of congregational ministry at the Abyssinian Baptist Church also a place where uh, those two things really are wed strongly and closely so i guess i've really been fortunate blessed to, to have a, a trajectory that's given me an opportunity to not only participate in that kind of confluence and combination, but to really see it being done impactfully and, and, and meaningfully in so many respects. And so that's to me, sort of the, the part and parcel of what I understand for me, at least I'll say uh, validates my sense of ministry. Yeah, I, I think that it's so important. And you mentioned these
1: extraordinary churches led by amazing people, Calvin Butts, who we lost last year. These are extraordinary prophetic ministers. And I what I really appreciate about this, and this is also, I'll say this about my predecessor, um, Dr. Welton Gaddy, was... The whole time they're doing this extraordinary national work, lifting up issues that that the nation is grappling with and trying to move forward with more justice, more love, more equity for everyone. They're also pastors. So they're doing it out of this care for people that is intimate, that recognizes all the complexity, that recognizes that people are going to, you know, they're going to get married. They're going to get they're going to they're going to give birth. They're going to die. And all of this is also. Tied up in the ex- experience, and so tell me about your experience being a pastor. I think at Nineteenth Baptist Church, do I have yeah, that? Nineteenth
0: Street in in, in Washington, and, yeah. and the New Hope Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I was assistant pastor at, at Abyssinian for nearly eight years. So, in all of those respects, uh, you know, seeing people at the highest points of their lives, and then seeing people at the most challenging points of their lives, and it and it does a couple of things. First of all, I think it weds you inextricably into the lives of those people. And, and the fact that that level of trust is placed uh, in one who gives that level of spiritual partnership is, is, is so awesome and daunting in some respects. Uh, so I'd say that for me, being able to be a part of the lives, the, the the unfolding of those lives, literally. And you know when I was at 19th Street in in Dallas, excuse me, I'm sorry, 19th Street in Washington, uh, I, I felt that it was a perfect sort of Narrative on my tenure there because when I got there, uh, the, the, the babies that I literally lifted up in dedication uh, ceremony, uh, by the time I left, I was sending off to college. And I said, Okay, you know what? Well done. You had a generation, <laughs> that, a generation and, nurtured, yeah. And and seeing that, and then but you, you mentioned Welton, uh, Gaddy, and one of the things that I found I have found so important in this work is people. Like him, like yourself, Paul, who understand that, yes, we speak to advocacy, we speak to policy. We speak in the in the realm of political engagement and all of those things. And that's critical and important and essential. But it doesn't really have enduring authenticity. if if we don't do it linked to what I believe, then this is me talking. What I believe I'm called to, and that is to to be pastoral, to be supportive, to be uh, uh, alongside uh, congregations, communities, individuals. And and I think that's what gives me the the, not only the validity in this work, but it also, I think, gives me the kind of hopefully the endurance to keep doing it because that's that's what's fulfilling.
1: Yeah, I I think authenticity and really remembering that advocacy is about people. I, I reference, you know, my great grandfather, Walter Rauschenbusch, whose whose whole public ministry you know, his first book, Christianity and Social Crisis, he dedicated to his the members of his church in New York City in Hell's Kitchen who taught him how to see the Bible, how to see the world, because it was through caring for them that he understood, you know, what they were going through and why it was part of his responsibility to care about yeah. the systems that were causing the deaths of the babies. I had the honor to talk to Bishop um, Barber, and he was just winding down 30 years of pastoral ministry. And people forget because, you know, we see Bishop Barber and we see him in all these big places and he's talking. People forget he was a pastor and he identifies very much with that. And so do you. And I just think that a lot of us are in the public eye and we're, we're, we're saying things about the nation, but it's about the people. And I just think that that is really helpful for all of us who are in the world of faith and interfaith to remember that ultimately it's about people who we
0: care for and we want to provide a, a better world for. So often, the work that ends up happening by way of, again, advocating for policy, advocating for political change, is born out of what is seen on a human scale. And your grandfather, and and again, one of my uh, sort of, I, I guess you could say, I never had the privilege of knowing him in life, but certainly as as a, an incredible inspiration, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Uh, were were close parallels in the sense that uh, obviously uh, when Walter Rauschenbusch was doing the work he was doing in Hell's Kitchen just a slight bit before, but at the same time, in, in a very corollary sense with the work that Adam Powell Sr. did as it related to people coming north from the northern migration. Right. And then when he uh, uh, struck out for, for the far, far far horizons of Harlem back in the early 20s right. and really built an institution, an institution that was pastoral in terms of meeting people's needs, but also, again, as you're saying, spoke to that larger public square conversation that I I think uh, that faith communities really are legitimately meant to be a part of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So important. So, you know, here we are. We're in (laughs) 2023. I'm looking forward to 2024 with this kind of dread, I have to say, Mm -hmm. like, because I don't know what kind of conversation is and what kind of. reality is about to slam us in the face. I mean, we are, we are already living it. I would love to get your sense as someone who has really been as well in the political realm. Like, how are you feeling? I'm being honest. I'm, I'm feeling dread only in the sense that it just seems like everything is so ugly right now, but I I would just love to hear, you know, the way you view this and as someone who's really been in the trenches.
0: Well, I think, unfortunately, um, when you think back to many election cycles now of long ago, we, we are so binary. Uh, there is no real, you know, it used to be when you talked about elections, you talked about election strategy, including being persuasive, meaning that there might have been a malleable middle to, to address. And, and, and to, I sadly have to acknowledge. I don't really know that that exists anymore. I think when you talk about persuasion, we're now talking about how we uh, energize the people who are already identifiably sort of in in our ranks, whatever those ranks might be. And that that's that's a reality, but it's also in a sense, it, it's challenging and, and I'll dare even say a little disheartening because it means that there's really no space for kind of expansive conversation to try to think, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe uh, somebody who was going to vote for candidate A might determine that they really would like to vote for candidate B because of, of, you know, a number of different factors. I think we're going to find ourselves uh, in a very challenging and strident season. Uh, We already are. Uh, I think that it is going to call upon, you know, (laughs) I I think strategically, I, I agree with uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, uh, who said, uh, n- notably, uh, I guess, what, two, two, three conventions ago that when they go low, we go high. Uh, and, that's, and and even without directing that to a specific political party one way or the other, I'll just say this. I agree that that we ought to summon our better angels. But at the same time, I also believe there's that passage that says you have to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. I think there has to be an understanding of what's at stake here. I don't think we can have the nicety of thinking, well, because we're the church or we're the religious communities, we don't really get too politically involved, really politically engaged. I think that's a, a critically faulty perspective to have. I think we have to figure out what we're going to need to figure out going into 2024 is how to be responsibly and civically engaged in this process without giving one's heart and soul over to any given political party. Right. But at the same time, understanding that the larger sets of issues are truly at stake and being able to make sure people understand that it is their responsibility. No, it's not your responsibility as a member of, of a faith community to say, well, you know, I don't get involved in politics because it's it's messy and ugly. No, it's your responsibility to remember that, you know, uh, uh, we have a place in the public square. We have a place in the agora. We have a place where we really do need to make sure that the issues that we think are important and worth standing for are what we stand for. So it's going to, re- I think it's going to call for some of that. And the last thing I will, well, maybe not the last thing, but the one other thing I will say is understanding that it's daunting. The particulars as they've sort of been drawn out are, are going to be challenging on lots of levels. Uh, I think from on one side, we're going to have to talk about energizing a base. On the other side, we're going to have to talk about the incoming that, unlike maybe what we've ever, never seen before in terms of the the negativity, et cetera, the divisiveness, and and basically steel ourselves for, for that journey. And, and I, I know it's not going to be easy, but maybe that's where some of that pastoral kind of encouragement that we were talking about earlier mm. uh, comes into play. Yeah.
1: You did faith outreach for DNC and, you were involved in uh, president obama's reelection campaign in faith how do you understand the best way for political parties uh, to do outreach to religious groups and also for religious groups to understand their relationship to partisan politics what is the the right blend of needing to respond in our democracy that's our job like every person has a right and a responsibility to engage in our democracy from their perspective, which can be a religious perspective, but what's a healthy relationship? I think I'm looking for the, the kind of sane, healthy relationship between religion, partisan politics, and government.
0: That's a great question, and it gives me the opportunity to, to lift one of my favorite MLK quotes, no doubt one that you've often heard and probably used yourself, when he said that the church is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. And it must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. Mm. And one of the, the valuable things about that quote is in no way, shape or form is Martin Luther King. And for that matter, I think any other, the major faith voices that we speak to is telling us to retract or remove from, you know, the realities of, of this, this whirlwind of, of political engagement. We've got to figure out how to do it in a way that is meaningful and effective and responsible. Now, I would say this, I'd say one of the things that faith communities need to understand is, as I'm, I'm trying to hopefully say in, in a way that's meaningful and clear, we cannot say, you know, when you, and you, you know, people almost some, sometimes you'll hear people in faith, you say with pride, oh, well, you know, we, we're not political. We don't get political. Uh, I, I, I don't have any problem with somebody saying to me, uh, we're not partisan. You know, we're not beholden to one political party. But I take great measure of, 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 challenge to the idea of somebody saying we're not political. When you think about, let's, let's go back to the Greek, you know, the, the word political just simply means really being in the, in the public realm, if you will. Right. And it was a, another sort of quote, I guess, I, 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 don't have it exactly. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Talked about being politically engaged. He said, you know what? And he was, he was oversimplifying it, but he was making the point, you know, a politician, Signs your birth certificate. You know, somewhere along in there, there's the clerk of the court to whoever it might be. A politician signs your marriage certificate. Same thing. And a politician, oftentimes, if, if, if the coroner is elected, it signs your death certificate. And the point he was simply trying to make is there's no, you know, there's no measure of our lives that doesn't get in, you know, it does not intersect with the realities of public policy. And we have to understand that as the church, we have to understand that we have a viable and, and an important place in that conversation and never to think that it's the appropriate thing to retract from that because simply we don't want to be political. Do we want to be partisan? Do we want to be beholden to a political a political party? No. But must we be a voice in the public square Absolutely. Uh, even if you're not talking
1: politics every time, you're being political. You're making a point right. to not talk about things that are mattering in people's lives. So there's no way not to be political. If you're preaching, you're being political one way or the other. And just be acknowledge that fact that like by the, by absenting yourself and just doing super individualistic stuff, that's a political uh, avenue. It's all it's all political. It's a question of you know how do we how do we engage? And I think it is important to recognize recognize that there is a healthy separation between partisan politics and and uh, religious communities but it's not an excuse for not allowing the inspiration the morality to come to bear in the way that is appropriate. You were there front and center in the 2012 re-election of President Obama. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what was going on for you in that moment? Like, and and what were you seeing in that moment? Because at the time, that did not seem as tame as we think about it in retrospect. You know, we kind of think about, oh, it wasn't, those were the good old years where we were all getting along. It's like, no, no, it was rough. I mean, it was real. Right. And so, you know, I... T- talk about that moment for your own, um, you know, and were you pastoring at that time? I'm just trying to like, that's so I, wild I, to I, me
0: that you had those two things going on at the same time. I took, I took a little bit of a mini sabbatical in September and October of 2012 to, I, I ended up being in Florida for that stretch of time uh, at, at our headquarters down there. But other than that, I, I prided myself on the fact that I, you know, <laughs> did my best. To try to to, to do both and, and and to be accountable to both, one of the things about that stretch of time, uh, keep in mind, I, I found it fascinating because the re-election of, of President Obama, you know, you would you remember the the groundswell of enthusiasm and excitement and history making sort of elements to the the election in two thousand eight. Not to say that all of that had dissipated because it certainly had not, but it was important to to be able to speak to individuals, faith leaders, and others about what had been accomplished and maybe what had not been accomplished. And I think in in some respects it was a more challenging thing to, to be a voice for the reelection campaign because you were having to be accountable, not just for aspirational promises, but for a track record. Hmm. And, and I will dare say that, you know, oftentimes with, with faith leaders, uh, you know, there were, there were different camps. There were people who felt, okay, we're, we're on a trajectory. We're getting where we need to get. And then there were those who felt, well, we still are falling Far short. I won't say that that meant that they were going to veer in another direction, you know, uh, by way of of their vote, but it certainly meant that they were uh, aware of those ways in which that they wanted to critique uh, where we had gotten so far in those four years. Another element I must say that I was particularly sensitive to and still is the incredible importance of making sure that by way you had asked earlier about how political parties and entities in deal, you know, engage with the faith community. To not be transactional, mm. and 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 a friend of mine often talked about the the fourth Sunday in October syndrome. <laughs> you know, that oftentimes political uh, candidates, elected officials, show up uh, in faith communities at the very end of right. uh, the cycle, uh, and and look to hopefully just simply by their presence uh, encourage people to come out and vote for them. And and I must say, you know, that there's a whole lot more people are not bedazzled uh, by that, maybe like if they ever were, certainly not like they used to be if they were. And so we really had to make it a point to try our best not to be transactional. I remember in terms of going to uh, church after church after church, I would do my best in giving my little five-minute spiel. And I'll be honest, it helped the fact that I have reverend in front of my name. It gave me a little bit of validity in a lot of spaces, but never talking about either candidate by name. Right. Talking about policies and programs that were underway and what might happen going forward, and I thought that that was a at least. In, it maybe some people might thought might have thought I was being too cute by half, but I was really trying to make sure that people understood the important thing here. Going back to what we were saying about how faith communities are effectively engaged is is the larger conversation, and not just you know a a, a party uh, affinity or affiliation, and yeah. and 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 being in that in the midst of all of that, I think. Uh, gave me a sense of not only, again, the value of faith communities in this work, but the essential nature. I mean, when it comes to organizing, educating, and mobilizing, what better place to do it than out of uh, so many faith communities? Yeah. I think one
1: of the things that I want to lift up that I think think was, was good about that campaign and the 2008 campaign, to start with the 2008 campaign, when John McCain was asked a question about Barack Obama being a Muslim, he shut it down. And I think Absolutely. that was one of the most admirable moments in all of um, American political history. It, it was just like that would have been very tempting to say, um, "Yep, no. we're gonna we're gonna paint him into that corner," and uh, and let's go. And um, how different and, the climate is now. Oh, how yeah. I mean, you know, but exactly. I think that's indicative. I mean, that was like he just shut it down. And while well, I think there was there were some areas that weren't as good as this, and others, I think the President Obama never never tried to tap into anti-Mormon um, sentiment in 2012, which I think many people were tempted to go for. Watch out yes. for those Mormons, you know, and, and I think that that's where we have to really be clear. Like, there's no place for that. Like, I may disagree ah. with someone 100%, but I, going after them just because of their religion
0: is is absolutely un-American. And I think that I that's I want to make sure really the, the record shows that. Yeah. That he very publicly and 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 when I said well I guess it was public but he certainly in a number of venues where I was with him said with no hesitancy whatsoever we will not in any way shape or form attack or cast aspersions upon uh, the Latter Day Saints Church uh, Mitt Romney's religion and he he was adamant about that and you're right people some people thought ah well you know there's a pretty challenging history around race relations et cetera but he never yeah. ever. Allowed anybody to, to to do that, which I think is is a really telling yeah. element. And one other thing I must say is that, and you were there, because you were on at least several of, of our panels at the convention, um, that we had the highest um, representation of faith groups and uh, uh faith traditions that heretofore it ever happened. I mean, obviously we certainly had our our, our our Jewish and Muslim and Christian brothers, but we had Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs and Jains and I mean we we really made an attempt to make sure that under people understood that the palette of uh, faith engagement in this country is wonderfully rich, yeah. and that's such a strength.
1: Yeah, and I know that you were there, uh, and and my predecessor, uh, the Reverend Doctor Welton Gaddy, was there with his his microphone, and I think he got a chance to interview
0: you. He did, he did, and and he, <laughs> it was wonderful because in that, it's funny, I was just. Obviously, as we uh, we saw warmly and fondly are giving remembrance to, to to our dear friend, Welton Gaddy, these days, um, I went back and I, and I remembered just that fact that I got a chance to talk about where the – and going back to our conversation about the pastoral. You know, Welton Gaddy was, was a pastor. Yeah. Yes, he was an incredible voice uh, in, in the context of, of uh, uh, the work done nationally, but, but he certainly had a pastor's heart. And we talked about – kind of the transformational stories that were unfolding there that got lifted up at the convention that were part of the campaign and and that was so persuasive on so many levels and and then also just talking about going forward what what things would look like going forward around those issues of religious freedom, the issues of, of, of being aware of persecution as it was exhibited of, on, on, on religious minorities. so so I just think again having that part of the conversation just be a normal expected part. And it was people like you and people like Walton Gatty and others who, you know, again, who, 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 not only bring me to accountability, but I think also, you know, the political parties yeah. to accountability. Hopefully, we're, prayerfully.
1: We're prayerfully. We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with Derek Harkins. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. And please make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast because the feed you're listening to today will be discontinued soon. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. I just want to mention and get your reaction to what we're seeing as far as the introduction of religion into this you know white christian nationalism and you know what was on display January 6th, but then continues to be on display which is this I feel like there's a threat of violence in the air and this is not just a threat. I mean, we saw it on January sixth. We saw it in Charlottesville. We see it. I see it in in Interfaith Alliance affiliates across the country, where one church in our affiliate over in in Fresno, California, had a fundraiser for LGBTQ people, and they the Proud Boys broke all their windows. We're seeing yeah. this. You know, we're seeing Nazis show up in front of synagogues. I mean, there is a threat out there that is that is using unfortunately, the veil of Christianity cloaking themselves in a faith uh, lens and threatening violence. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what do we do about that? And I'm aware that, you know, especially people in the Black Community have had that veil of violence being threatened against them since the beginning in this country. So, this is not a new thing. It's just in this manifestation. How are you, as a religious leader, as a political leader, as a media figure, how do you imagine the response that could be as powerful without using the same tools?
0: No, I, that's a great, great question. I'll, I'll start by speaking to the very last point that you made a minute ago. Um, in terms of legacy and history, we have a picture in our in our hallway in our home of my great grandmother, my grandfather, and two of my great uncles, taken probably uh, around 1910 in in New Liberty, Kentucky, mm-hmm. and 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 these were um, uh, the very much the products of, of that time, and 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 these uh, uh, four uh, vision I say visionary African Americans because. As you look at the picture, you remember how you used to have to kind of stolidly sit still for a portrait because, you know, it, it didn't happen instantaneously. And I think to myself, I, I wonder if they would even be able to imagine sort of the opportunities, the, the the places, the things that I've been able to be a part of, the things that have unfolded. But at the same time, to your point about the challenges that we're facing, the same kind of depth and reservoir of faith and resolve that they had for living in uh, the, the, the border South in the early 20th century, which was certainly replete with racism and, and prejudice, et cetera. I feel like that's, you know, that's, that's an indication to me that there's, there's a place of strength that we can, we can reach for and find. So that's, that's kind of the, again, the, the pastoral response. The other thing I think it's important to remember is that we're in a place in a space and a time uh, when I think we are finding that the the, the, the I'll be so dramatic as to call them the death throes of majority culture. In other words, uh, as, as, as demographers are saying that as we move toward the middle of the century, that America most likely will not be, the United States will not be a majority white nation for much longer. I mean, you know, the numbers pretty much are showing that out. And I think that so some people who see that in their own twisted sense, as an imminent threat, uh, are, are doing the things that we're talking about that are acting out in ways that, that are perverting uh, uh, the, the idea of, of, of Christianity in a sense that that uh, they can use it as a fulcrum for hateful and destructive acts. I think that, you know, at this point, what we need to do are two things. We need to be clear about the narrative. That, that, that uh, I, I get so frustrated when the word... <laughs> W-O-K-E gets appropriated by other folk in, in a purely negative sense and they've disparaged it and you hear the anti-wokeism. And I'm like, we need to own the narrative around all of these things. We need to own the narrative about what it means. Yeah, I can talk to you about what it means to be woke, uh, but I have a very different perspective on it than a certain governor from Florida. And I think we need to have a, a re- re-engagement around the narrative of these things. And we can't be timid when it comes to that. That's, that's one piece. And then I think as as well, we also need to understand that the work that needs to happen is going to be both sweeping, yeah, we're getting ready to enter into a national election and all that that engages, but we've also got to be granular. Mm. Uh, Think about some of the things that are happening on localized levels. You know, when you talk about anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ and and, and certainly anti-reproductive rights measures, many of those are, yeah, they're taking place in... State legislatures, but also the the, 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 the seabed of some of that is happening on a much more localized level, and so I think helping our uh, folk to understand that and going back to the idea of, of what it means to be politically involved, mm. uh, yes, you mm. need to be mindful of those issues and concerns that are happening on on that granular and localized level, and be aware of that. I think with Christian nationalism, unfortunately, because you have again national voices. That are allowing for and, and and cheerleading some of the reprehensible nature of that again, one more time, we need to make sure that we cultivate and develop a narrative that stands just as squarely in this in the space around these issues as, as what we're seeing other folk do and not and not think that we can give it over to to somebody else who means nothing but harm and destruction.
1: Oh, my God. You said so many things. I just love there. Every little bit of it. The first thing is about woke. Listen, if you want to stay asleep, stay asleep. You know, if you want to not be aware, don't be aware. But don't pretend like those are good things to not be aware and to be asleep When things are going on around you that you need to be aware of and be awoke to. And I will be awoke to the fact of the history of racism in this country. I will be aware of the misogyny that is happening. I will be uh, very alive to the anti-LGBTQ stuff that's going on. So don't tell me I should not be woke. I want to be aware and awake and all of it. And frankly, those are religious terms. Like, you know, woke, woke comes out of, you know, out of a religious context. Being awake is like a Buddhist principle. Shake off all of the illusions and be awake to what's really going on. These are principles that we should embrace. I love the fact that you said, like, let's not be timid. Screw timidity right now. I mean, forget it. We cannot be timid. And when you go back and you look at Adam Clayton Powell and you look at Walter Wright and you look at King and you look at uh, John Lewis and you all these people and the women, I mean, uh, you know, Sojourner Truth, any one of them, they were not successful because they were timid they were strong. They were putting it out there and they were had so many arrows coming at them and yet they had to do it. And so I'm just, I feel so strongly about that. And the other yeah. thing, I'm, the last thing I'm going to like rant on and then I'm going to like shut up for a second is that no, all right. the, you know the granular nature of what you're talking about and that, you know, and, and I should mention for everybody, the, I am proud of this. Reverend Dr. Derek Harkins is on the board of Interfaith Alliance as of this, just a couple months ago. This is so important to me to have someone of his stature, I'll say it to you, of your stature, um, you. on our board and to, to be in a, in this fight with us. And the Interfaith Alliance is in these locations, speaking up at school board meetings where this is going down. And so we have a national conversation, but we have very, very localized conversation. And that's Interfaith Alliance's work, national, but also super local and not being timid and not being afraid and not taking Someone else's narrative about what's going on right now, and being awake to what needs to happen in this country and what is happening in this country, and that we will help uh, birth in this country.
0: You 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 couldn't be more right, and it, and it is it is an honor and a privilege to be partnering with Interfaith Alliance in this work. I'm excited about it, the future holds. You know, as you were talking, it, it made me think about the fact again. You know. Anchored in, in, in my tradition, our tradition, but in my tradition as a Christian minister, you know, uh, there's a wonderful passage that talks about the fact that we're not given the spirit of fear and, and, and timidity, but of, of, of boldness and a sound <laughs> mind. And I think we really sometimes need to understand that uh, while it is it is genteel in in the realm of, of 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 American mainline Protestantism, to you know to to not be objectionable, to not make too many waves, to 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 be a, a you know an acceptable guest at the banquet, so to speak. But that's not the prophetic voice. The people, the names we've raised, your your progeny, uh, your your I should say your uh, uh, forebear and and all the other names that we've lifted, did the very opposite of that. And I don't think there's anything to be apologetic about when we say, no, we are going to stay. Now, here's the thing. Doing it in a way that engages and enthuse, enthuses people and helps them to understand the value of this is critical because, you know, it's a, it's a little self-serving to have a perspective, to have even an ideology, and to be so woven up into that that you just are all about espousing that and you don't care whether there's a productive outcome, whether it is transformational. And people are like that. I understand that. And and I and I and I'm deeply concerned about that because I feel like sometimes that that saps away some of the critical and important energy that needs to be a part of, of this work. We need to understand that that you have to be able to connect and and make sure that whatever we're talking about in espousing is relatable to folk. It's di- it's it's right. on human scale, right? And and that's about the granular work. Some of this, you know, this this work is not all glitzy. Well, and,
1: and, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not glitzy. But also what you're saying is, you know, none of us, you know, we, we're always growing. We're always learning. No one like all, comes out and is like, hey, I know everything and I'm a complete person. We've all been told, hey, you might want to think about this. I went to Union Seminary, too. And that's where I, you know, I, I, I had, um, you know, I was a good liberal, but I hadn't really had a chance to listen to black prophetic voices before I went to Union. And it changed my life. And what I said, I said to some people going, you know, who were like, hey, I'm going to union. I'm like, oh, great. Get ready. Um, because, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it was, it was challenging. And, 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 you know, I, 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 I sat at the feet of Dr. Cohn uh, and, you know, and, and it forced me to reckon with some things I hadn't reckoned with. And then I also offered that for some other people who maybe had not met a gay person who um, they were in close relationship with over three years. It transformed the way they thought about the LGBTQ co- community. And so the opportunity is for us to engage one another with with you know with confidence and with an you know, open heart, open mind. But I do think like and and what I would quibble with you from something you said earlier, I think there is a persuadable. It may not be as big of as as it was, but there's some people out there. Who really who feel a little homeless right now as far as politically and and I think as if we can make an invitation and this is you know this is my I I'm I'm speaking about Christian nationalism a lot but I'm also preaching about it and when I preach about it what I try to say is like what does love look like in the in the in the contest around the ideology of Christian nationalism what is what can we do that would extend a hand. And let people feel who feel tempted by this ideology of sense of like it's it's all or nothing. To say actually we want you to be a part of a broader circle of America, and you don't have to embrace Christian nationalism to be a good Christian and to be a good American. And so that you know this is where I'm 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 trying to and, and I'm preaching to myself because I I have a tendency to be um, if you haven't noticed a little effusive and uh, and emphatic. Um, but I do think at our best we can offer an invitation and a yeah. cast of vision. You know what I'm saying? And you know this. You, I mean, you have, of all people, have cast the vision of an inclusive, welcoming, equitable right. America. And I think that's part of our job.
0: I'll happily concede. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I sometimes I think I look at this through different sets of lenses now in my my absolutely. uh um, hard boiled political operative <laughs> lens. I'm probably looking at it at least at that start outset. No, we've got to mobilize our, our base, et cetera. Oh, but I do in no all questions. seriousness, though, I, I hear what you're saying and, and, and I will not disagree with you because I think that, you know, you do have to listen, you do have to hold out hope. And, and I, and I will sh- share this with you. Um, during the campaign, <laughs> I got together with some of my colleagues, uh, every Wednesday morning. Uh, there was a very small handful of us and, and I'm doing my very best to make sure I shield this in anonymity Because but the point I'm making is this, we, get, we would get together for about maybe half an hour at the most 40 minutes for just sharing and, and prayerfulness. One of the individuals now, now, and, and for the most part, these were all folk who were involved in the campaign or in, on some level like me you know, at the DNC, others on, on the Biden campaign, et cetera. One of the individuals who joined us regularly Every Wednesday morning was an individual who was a significant presence and voice uh, in the evangelical world, and to the point where I would have worried about their sort of overall kind of viability had it gotten out and all, and we and, and on those prayer calls we were not, I can tell you right now, we were not strategizing politically. We were not doing things around, uh, you know, uh, the specifics of the campaign at all. And just the fact that we thought that that, that opportunity for engagement fellowship, if you will, was a good thing. And, and this individual thought so as well. And, and I have had and continue to have a high regard for them and their work. And as I said, you know, um, it, would, it was important for them to do this uh, in the Nicodemus mode, under cover yeah, of darkness. Yeah, no, but to your point, I think it validates what you were saying is that there are folk who do want to find. And, you know, here's the I'll say this. Let's make sure we, we, we don't confuse terms. Middle ground can mean a place where we, you know, again, where our scripture tradition talks about coming. Come let us reason together. Middle ground can be that place where that happens, where that reasoning takes place. I don't think that middle ground means 50 percent compromise here, 50 percent compromise here. I think it means that there's some space where even in the midst of our different perspectives, we can figure out a way to, to cohabitate that space, uh-huh. you know, because I, I don't want it to just simply be quantitative. Well, I'm going to concede this, you can see that, right. and then we can sort of come together. I think that's an oversimplification. So, and, and the individual that I'm talking about, uh, that wasn't the issue at hand either. You know, we all came together appreciating each other for our individuality and at the same time, you know, being collectively in, in, a, in, a, in a good space, hopefully, you know, encouraging each other. So, yeah, I think that can happen. Will it happen in broad, sweeping, overwhelming numbers? Maybe not so much. Oh my goodness! But I do I think mean, it, 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 it can fall. Yeah, I mean,
1: people are very like I it's. It's interesting. We had um, Isaac Sharp, who you may know. He he. Oh, yeah, he, very he's, well. a, he's at Union, and and we were. I was like, give me the definition of, of evangelical, and he was like, evangelical has become a political term. It's not a religious identification anymore. It's a political identification. I I thought that was just like, oh, okay, okay. I'm going to I'm going to have to think about that for a little bit. But that's that's it was fascinating for me um, to hear him say that who has really been looking at at the evangelical tradition and who comes out of it as a white evangelical. One of the things I like to to end with um, is give people an opportunity to talk about what gives themselves hope. Uh, and because that's a great way for all of us to gain that um, wisdom and also hopefully glean some of that hope for ourselves. So right now, with all that's going on in your own life and in the life of the nation and the world, what gives you hope?
0: Sure. You know, I, I, early on, I talked about in my pastors uh, doing baby dedications and lifting those children up and, and, uh, obviously all the hope and promise that there is in a, in a life that's, that's in formation uh, you know, you, 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 you can't possibly not sort of invest in a sense that, that if, if that's nurtured and cared for, that there's, there's a prospect for, for something that's good and, and, and better. I'm a product. I'm a part of inextricably woven into the black church. And one of the things I will say is that we have, Consistently been a place where hope and endurance has not just simply been sort of uh, put up on a pedestal to be observed, but those are the clothes that we have to put on, and, and, it, and it unfolds by way of what gets preached. It unfolds by the the ethos within the, the 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 church, the Black Church, and and I say that, and I'm not saying that to the exclusion of any other religious tradition. What I'm saying is. I'm able to say, because I know and I've seen it borne out in the lives and testimonies of of the people who nurtured me, the people who I stand alongside, the people who I've served as pastor, I've seen in them a deep deep well, uh, a deep reservoir of capacity to not, and when I say endure, I don't mean just simply to endure uh, injustice and, 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 and affliction. No, I mean to endure the, the fact that we're in this struggle. Uh, it is long term. There, there are people who have wielded power negatively. And one thing we can be certain of is that the tide does change. And we need to be prepared for being able to help advance that. And so, again, as a, as again, as, as, as a product of the Black church, I think that that's been a, a core value that, that has been woven into my life in every measure. And that does give me hope because I've, I've seen it too often. I've seen it in too many people and in too many instances to, to disregard it. The other thing I'll say is I just really believe uh, when you talk about the generations that are yet to come, the ones that are with us, I want to make sure that they feel empowered by our supportiveness. I, I, I want to make sure that they understand that we didn't get it all right <laughs> these preceding generations. My goodness, as the temperatures in Texas reach 120, I, it's clear we didn't get it right when it comes to creation care and other things. However, I do think it's important for, for them to know that uh, we have, uh, here's a term for you, vouchsafed in them a real hope and expectation. For, for leadership going forward. And, and it's, it's tough. It's difficult. It's, it's stop and start and bumpy. But we've got to be committed to this for, for the long haul. Uh, that, all of that, to me, endures beyond a given political cycles uh, platform, beyond even the particular political luminaries of the moment. Because uh, we're talking about the same enduring challenge that folk who came long before us had to deal with. And I'm imagining people who come long after us as well. So, mm. but I'm hopeful. Um, at the same time, I'm hopeful. I've, I've got my, my work shoes on and, and my... Uh, I think that, I think that's my
1: Well, absolutely. I think, you know, in some ways, hope is an inspiration, but it's also a strategy. And it's and, uh, yeah. and uh, you spoke so beautifully about it. The Reverend Dr. Derek Harkins is the former director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the Department of Housing and Urban Development under President Biden. Derek has also served as Director of Interfaith Outreach for the Democratic National Committee and as Senior Vice President for Innovations in Public Programs at Union Theological Seminary. Today, he is a principal in the Raven Group's Issue, Campaigns, Practice area. Derek, thank you for being with us today on State of Belief.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. This is very important. As part of our new partnership with Religion News Service for distribution and expansion of this show, the podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief Today, We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I will be in conversation with Representative Jamie Raskin. I am so excited. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.